Hi, everybody. Cheryl Atkinson here. Welcome to another edition of the Cheryl Atkinson podcast on justthenews.com. I hope you'll check out all of the Just the News podcast. You can go to justthenews.com on the homepage and see the list. I hope you'll consider ordering my new bestseller, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism, a nonpartisan look at the devolution of the news as we once knew it. Today, we're going to look at the data I found about the two coronavirus vaccines that are on the market so far, including a lot of information that has either been misreported or you probably didn't know about. There is so much misreporting going on about vaccines, vaccination, the coronavirus vaccines, and this is common with prescription medicine and drugs in general. I find that reporters, even sometimes medical reporters, do not do their own analysis and looking around. Sometimes they report what they heard or what they think or what they saw from one source or they take at face value and uncritically something they were told or something that was published by the government. These can all be big mistakes. Yes, we should absolutely report what a pharmaceutical company says about a medicine. We should report what CDC and the FDA say, what public health professionals say. But we should also look for ourselves and see if the data that we can find matches up with what they're reporting. We should see if there are countervailing opinions and science that may balance some of what they're telling us because you don't have to look very hard to see that history is littered with examples of the government and the industry either being wrong by accident or sometimes conflicted and being wrong intentionally or being intentionally misleading about something. So it helps for reporters to be independent and look at what we're being told with a skeptical eye just to make sure we cross our T's and dot our I's. I will mention one example of what inexperience or what happens when reporters talk about things as if they're an authority or as if they've somehow confirmed it firsthand rather than attributing it to their source. So then if it's a mistake, it's actually the fault of the reporter rather than them being able to say, this is information I was told by another authority or official or government body. They, the reporter or the news organization, owns the mistake if they stated something as if it were a fact and it turns out to be wrong and they never attribute it to where they got the information. So an example can be found with CBS News recently mistakenly reporting on their evening news that Moderna had a coronavirus vaccine that, according to FDA data, was 100% effective for people over age 65 and 94% effective for the whole tested population. Well, that turned out to be wrong, and I wasn't covering these sorts of stories for CBS News very long some years ago before I realized that that kind of a figure is pretty much impossible. 100% effectiveness, and we'll talk more in a minute about why whatever the effectiveness rate is can be a little misleading depending on how it's reported, but we'll get to that in just a minute. It turns out the true data showed an 86.4% effectiveness rate for the over 65 population, which was pretty good, 
but not 100% and also not as good as the average for people who were younger or not over age 65. So CBS did do, I guess you can't call it a correction because they didn't flag that they had reported it incorrectly. But once it was drawn to their attention a couple days later, they used the correct figure without ever pointing out that they had reported the wrong figure. So there are probably still people out there today telling their elderly parents or thinking themselves that, hey, this vaccine is 100% effective in people over age 65, which again is not true. So anyway, I spent some time going through the information that the FDA, CDC, Pfizer, and Moderna have about these vaccines. And I will caveat that this should always be the case if you listen to a podcast. Things may have changed by the time you're listening to this. So what I'm reporting is what I found as of the date that I'm recording this podcast. You should check CDC, the website, FDA, and other sources to make sure if you have any decisions to make that you're relying on the latest information or at least you're finding out what the latest information they're publicizing is. But first, let me give you a little summary of what we're going to talk about today, what I found out. First of all, something I thought was interesting, Moderna reports significantly higher risk of common side effects than the Pfizer version of the vaccine. So that was interesting. I hadn't seen any other side-by-side comparison, but I made one myself. And I'll tell you where you can find it in an easy-to-view chart in a few minutes. The second piece of this summary that I want to tell you about has to do with the number of reported side effects. And I guess what got me curious about this was I actually heard a reporter on the national news claim as a firsthand knowledge, not even attributed to a source, but he said that there was only one side effect among all of the patients who'd gotten coronavirus vaccines. Now, listen, I don't think you have to be very smart or even very experienced at these things to understand that that's an impossible number. The drug companies wouldn't claim such a thing, I don't think. Neither would CDC or FDA. Not sure where this reporter was getting his information, particularly because he didn't say. But in fact, there have been over 5,000 vaccine recipients who have suffered a health impact event that was as of December 19th. So that's sort of an old number. It would be higher now. We'll talk about what a health impact event is in just a moment. That's a rate, by the way, of about 2.3% of vaccine recipients, 2.3% reporting or suffering a health impact event. CDC says there was a severe allergic reaction, anaphylaxis, in about six patients as of a report that I looked at. Both vaccines were said to be effective at reducing the risk of symptomatic COVID-19 for at least 14 days, yes, just 14 days for Moderna, or about more than two months for Pfizer-BioNTech. Why only 14 days or more than two months? Because it's impossible to know how long the vaccines are effective beyond the time they've been in existence. So if they were tested in patients who were followed for 14 days, you know that it works for 14 days, but you don't know it works for 15. Same with two months, same with six months. So again, when reporters say things such as 
the vaccine is effective, it should come, in my view, with a comma and a caveat that says for what period of time they know. By the same token, it's impossible to know what the long-term adverse events or side effects are when the medicines haven't been out long enough to know. As one FDA scientist told me years ago when I was starting to cover stories about prescription drug side effects and risks, he said, in essence, the entire population after a drug is approved becomes the test study group because even with large studies, it's impossible to pick up relatively rare but significant side effects that even if they only occur in a very tiny percent of the population and didn't show up in the study population, could show up in the general population years later and impact thousands or tens of thousands of people and yet not be evident until it's been in use among a large group of people for a long period of time. So right now, as the coronavirus vaccines are being given to patients, there is monitoring going on by the government and the drug companies to identify side effects that have not yet come up in studies, particularly, as you know, because of the collapsed timeline, they weren't able to study these for very long. Now, CDC emphasizes that, of course, both of these COVID-19 vaccines approved for emergency use are safe and effective for that emergency use. And I want to emphasize that. So as we discuss these things, keep that in mind and check with your doctor if you have questions or consult the CDC and FDA website. The data and information that I'm going to be talking about today comes from the government and the drug companies, the vaccine makers. Okay, some of the details. First of all, uh, the CDC is keeping a close eye out for adverse events, ones that they already know about and perhaps new ones. There's something they put into effect called V-Safe Active Surveillance Program. This is a program that allows for patients who are getting the vaccine to voluntarily directly report through text messaging and communication with public health officials to directly report their adverse events outside of the normal vaccine adverse event reporting system called VAERS. By the way, this is how it works, that if someone has an adverse event or suffers any kind of side effect or problem after vaccination, whether they know for sure that it's connected to the vaccine or not, same is true of prescription drugs, by the way, that aren't vaccines, it is to be reported so that it can be picked up and viewed in the context of other reports. There's no way, for example, for scientists to pick up a new adverse event if all of them aren't reported. Then they can call through and say, wow, there's something exceedingly common that's emerging in this data that we never saw in the studies. This happened when I broke the international news that Viagra can cause blindness. It was something that the drug company hadn't picked up. In fact, I believe when asked about it, when there were lawsuits early on, uh, the drug company denied it. But I called through the adverse event reports and saw that these vision problems were exceedingly common compared to other things in people who were using Viagra. And coupled with studies that also identified eye impacts, this emerged as a problem that was never envisioned originally, but turned out to be something that was ultimately added to the warning label. This is how they find these things out. Doesn't mean that everything that's reported is or should be something that's directly connected to the vaccine. We may not know, but this is how they pick up and do the surveillance for potential side effects. 
According to the government, as of December 18th, 215,362 people had gotten their first dose of coronavirus vaccine. Of that number, of the more than 215,000, 5,052 were reported to have suffered an unspecified health impact event. So again, the numbers we're talking about, more than 5,000 people of the 215,000 suffered a health impact event. That's about 2.3% of them. What's a health impact event? Well, as defined by CDC, it's something that was serious enough that they were, quote, unable to perform normal daily activities, unable to work, required care from doctor or health care professional. So these aren't just a little headache that kind of goes away. These are serious enough that they can't carry about their normal daily activities or maybe even had to go to the doctor or a hospital. 2.3%, more than 5,000 people out of 215,000. So again, I don't know where that reporter that I heard say there was only one side effect. Not sure where he got that information, but it's closer to 2.3% of people, according to CDC, over 5,000 people as of December 18th. Let's go down the list of the most common side effects. The drug companies are always asked as part of the data that they turn into the government to quantify what they have identified as the most common side effects, the ones that occur most frequently in the study subjects, or once the medicine is out in the general population, they can adjust those numbers for what's being seen in the general population after the study. But you can see this chart, which is probably easier to see the side-by-side comparison by going to CherylAckison.com and looking for the story that I did titled More Than 5,000 COVID-19 Vaccine Recipients Have Reportedly Suffered Health Impact Event. You could probably just search COVID-19 on my website and this will come up. Let's talk about the most common one reported by both Pfizer and Moderna, pain at injection site. And by the way, sometimes the pain doesn't come right away, according to the drug companies. Sometimes it's three days later. Sometimes it's seven days later, the pain at the injection site. And you'll notice this trend as I'm reading it. Pfizer bests Moderna in every category that we're going to name. By their own data, by their own account, Moderna has, let's say, a less attractive side effect profile. When it comes to pain at injection site, Pfizer had it reported in 84.1% of patients, Moderna in 92% of patients. Fatigue, Pfizer had 62.9% of patients report fatigue. Moderna had 70%. Headache, Pfizer had 55%, 55.1%. Moderna had 64%. Muscle pain, which is also called myalgia, 38.3% for Pfizer, 61.5% for Moderna. Chills, For Pfizer patients, 31.9%. For Moderna, 45.4%. For joint pain, arthralgia, that's another name for it, 23.6% for Pfizer, 46.4% for Moderna, about double. For fever, 14.2% for Pfizer, 15.5% for Moderna. 
injection site swelling, 10.5% for Pfizer, 14.7% for Moderna. See every category so far, and it'll be this way for the last four, Moderna has more or a higher rate of side effects in the category. Injection site redness, or if I'm saying this correctly, it's also called erythema, 9.5% for Pfizer, 10% of patients for Moderna. This is a big one, nausea and vomiting. And we're talking about in some cases, according to their data, the kind of nausea and vomiting that requires hydration and maybe a visit to the doctor or the hospital. 1.1% of Pfizer patients, 23% for Moderna. That's getting really close to one in four patients in the case of Moderna reporting nausea and vomiting, but just 1% of the Pfizer patients. For malaise, Pfizer reported a half a percent, not mentioned by Moderna, and for lymphadenopathy, swollen lymph glands or lymph nodes, I suppose, three-tenths of one percent for Pfizer, not mentioned for Moderna. Again, the big standout for me, double the number for Moderna of patients having joint pain or arthralgia, and nausea and vomiting, 23 percent for Moderna, and just 1% for Pfizer. There's an interesting question to be addressed here, particularly as potentially other vaccines become approved. Assuming they have similar effectiveness, then how does one justify offering vaccines that have different safety profiles, particularly if they're drastically different when it comes to side effects and safety? Shouldn't the safest one be offered ahead of the ones that are less safe or have more side effects, should patients have a choice if there's a choice available? Should they be told about these side-by-side comparisons so they can make up their mind? Or is there some other mitigating factor? Maybe Moderna doesn't look as good as Pfizer when it comes to common side effects, but maybe with more serious side effects that emerge, what if Moderna does better than Pfizer? Or what if their longer-term effectiveness is different? But these are all things, it seems to me, patients need to be told so that as we move forward, they have decisions they can make based on good information. The V-SAFE surveillance program, as I mentioned, is going to help identify those as yet unidentified side effects that won't be seen until a lot more people have taken the vaccine. And it's going to also help the government in monitoring for longer-term side effects that we just don't know about yet because the vaccines haven't been out there long enough. And not all vaccine side effects happen, as I've mentioned, immediately after vaccination. Some have been reported, depending on the vaccine, uh, weeks, months, and perhaps even years after vaccination is given. CDC also notes that as of December 18th, it had confirmed six cases of anaphylaxis, or severe allergic reaction following vaccination. This seemed to understandably be of concern as it's being monitored by CDC officials. And CDC's Dr. Thomas Clark wrote in a presentation about this that appropriate medical treatment used to manage immediate allergic reactions must immediately be available in the event an acute anaphylactic reaction occurs following administration of the vaccine. The allergic reaction reports 
have prompted CDC to recommend reinforcing measures to recognize, respond, and report anaphylaxis. The agency also said that people with anaphylaxis following the COVID vaccination should not receive additional doses of the vaccine. We'll continue our discussion right after a short break. We're back talking about the coronavirus vaccines. Once again, I will remind you to consult the cdc.gov website, fda.gov. A lot of good information out there. Not really that hard to find because so many people are apparently looking for it. You could also go to CherylAckison.com and look at a story where I've talked about the side effect profiles of the coronavirus vaccines. And I've put a lot of links in there to the drug company data, to the FDA information, and to the CDC material. So you can read this for yourself. And keep in mind that this changes by the day. Something that may be true when I've recorded this podcast could be amended or could look a little different in another context as more information becomes available. Obviously, that's how it works with a pandemic that we're still learning about and with medicines that we're trying out that we don't know all that much about that are being used for emergency use. So keep that in mind. A couple of other notes. I noticed that the Pfizer studies seem to have included children as young as age 12, but the adverse events listed were for people age 16 and over. So I don't know, I couldn't find out easily what were the adverse events for the children aged 12 to 15. And I note that that population, according to the government, is not recommended to have the vaccine. So I wondered, were there some issues in that population or could they not get enough kids in the study group? I'm sure I can find that out if I dig around a little bit more, but I thought it was worthy of mentioning here. Also, some people are familiar with the controversial preservative thimerosal, the mercury-based preservative that used to be in more of our routine childhood vaccinations. The government ordered it pulled out some years ago, even though they said there was nothing wrong with it. But there are a lot of safety concerns some people have about thimerosal, denied by others and by the government in general. But there's no apparent reason to be concerned about that in either of these coronavirus vaccines, which contain no mercury thimerosal preservative. So don't worry about that with these medicines. By the way, every time you hear a reporter say that all of the mercury and thimerosal has been removed from children's vaccines, that's false. After the controversy and after a lot of it was removed, it remained used in trace amounts in some childhood vaccines. And some scientists say that if a child is sensitive or has a reaction to thimerosal, that even a trace amount or trace amounts could impact the child. So that's the controversy. And by the way, there is still thimerosal in most of the flu shots administered to children and adults. Although you can ask for the mercury-free or thimerosal-free version if you know to do it. But anyway, not a concern if you are concerned about that with the coronavirus vaccines. Let's talk about the ingredients because it is recommended that if you're allergic to any of the ingredients in these vaccines, which I 
think is true with any medicine. If you're allergic to it or something in it, you don't want to take it. But I've talked to a couple of people who've gotten the coronavirus vaccine and were not asked about these ingredients. In fact, I can't pronounce some of them. I don't know if I would be allergic to them. But again, you can go to my website and look at the ingredients. They were not all that easy to find, so I've aggregated it in that same article at CherylAckeson.com. And it lists, again, I can't pronounce some of this stuff, but like the Pfizer vaccine has lipids and it lists some chemical names, um, potassium chloride, monobasic potassium phosphate, sodium chloride, dibasic sodium phosphate dihydrate, and sucrose, among other things. The Moderna vaccine also contains lipids, again, names I can't pronounce, cholesterol, acetic acid, sodium acetate, and sucrose. For the full list, see my website article. Another mention under the Moderna side of things, the FDA said that it is mandatory for vaccination providers to report to that vaccine adverse event reporting system all mistakes, says vaccine administration errors, all serious adverse events they learn about, all cases of multi-inflammatory syndrome in adults, MIS, and hospitalized or fatal cases of COVID-19 following vaccination. I'm not sure why the special mention of multi-inflammatory syndrome in adults, but again, that's something specifically mentioned. Now, on to effectiveness. I touched on this a while ago. A lot of people don't understand this, but it makes sense if you think about it. When someone's talking about how effective a vaccine is, in other words, how long it's effective at preventing the targeted disease, there's no way to know how effective it is beyond the length of time it's been in existence. So that's why when the Gardasil vaccine first came out and they were touting really, really high effectiveness numbers, but one of the scientists involved in the development explained that we don't really know how effective it is in preventing cervical cancer for girls down the road because they're giving it to young girls at a time when they have little to no risk of cervical cancer. And what was really needed to know in terms of effectiveness is in 30 or 40 years, would this protection really be working at the age when they're more likely to get cervical cancer if they're going to get it? So those are stats and data that will be coming out Gosh, in the next decade or so, we'll know a lot more about that vaccine. So back to the coronavirus vaccine, when they're talking about effectiveness, again, that should come with a comma that says for two months. The Pfizer studies, according to CDC, found effectiveness for two months. You know how there's talk about, well, if you actually get symptomatic coronavirus, we don't know if it's like other viruses and we'll that give you lifelong immunity from thereafter, or will it last a shorter period of time? So far, it looks like there's immunity that lasts at least some months. Again, we don't know because COVID-19 hasn't been around that long. So we don't know if those infected will still be immune from further infection for five years from now or two years from now. But we know so far, by and large, according to scientists, they're immune at least six, seven, eight, nine months out with some rare exceptions. So with the vaccine, they were only able to study it for Pfizer, 
for about two months. They know that it works two months out, but it's the same thing that they're saying is with people who've had an infection. They don't know if it's going to work beyond two months. Now, they think they have a pretty good idea because the way they can measure things, they don't see things drastically going down in terms of protectiveness after two months and one day or after three months. But the fact is, it's just an unknown at this point. We'll have a lot more information as time goes on. What about the Moderna vaccine? Well, Moderna studies found effectiveness, meaning a reduced risk for having symptomatic coronavirus in a confirmed case for at least 14 days after the second dose. That was as of December 17th. By now, it's going to be even longer because it's been out longer, but Think about that, just 14 days effectiveness at the time that they were ready to put this on the market because they thought this was so important. CDC notes, as I said, that observed outcome of vaccine efficacy at two months does not directly inform vaccine efficacy for any duration longer than two months. That's a quote from CDC. In other words, again, there's no way to know whether the vaccine is effective for any period longer than the time period that it's been given to patients. But so far, the government and the drug makers are optimistic. I was looking at contraindications or reasons that the government was listing for people who might not want to get the vaccine, and there really weren't very many, if any, of them. I was kind of surprised, but I think part of that is we just don't have a whole lot of information yet. And they weren't saying that if you're pregnant, you shouldn't get it. In other words, From everything I read, the CDC was saying that's an individual choice of the pregnant woman and she should consult with her doctor, look at everything that's known at that moment in time. But they point out that there is no data to know on either vaccine whether this impacts if you're breastfeeding a child, you know, the impact that might have, or what it really does if you get the vaccine while you're pregnant. Um, They feel like it's safe but they acknowledge that they have no data and that this is an individual decision at this point in time, really is sort of an experiment. And lastly, I'll mention that there is a countermeasures injury compensation program. And this is listed on government websites and information for people to know about because there are side effects with every medicine and with every vaccine, and sometimes there are injuries Even when there are vaccine injuries, it doesn't necessarily mean the vaccine shouldn't be marketed. It just happens. Some people have predispositions that are unknown that make them react to a particular vaccine when other people wouldn't. But there is something called CICP, Countermeasures Injury Compensation Program. It's a federal program that may help people pay for the costs of their medical care and expenses if they've been seriously injured by certain medicines or vaccines, including the coronavirus vaccine. Why? Because in general, the drug companies are exempt from injuries from their vaccines. For a lot of different reasons that we can talk about another time, the government has taken on the burden. In other words, taxpayers and patients pay the burden or the cost of vaccine injuries. And by and large, The drug makers and vaccine makers, when it comes to vaccines, are exempt from the liability. A lot of people don't like that because they say it means that they can develop whatever kind of drug they want. They can make mistakes. They could have a safety profile that's not good. They could even potentially hypothetically 
be deceitful about their medicine but never have to pay the price because that price is covered in a system that's paid by government, taxpayers, and patients through a tax on vaccine doses. But on the other hand, the drug companies and vaccine makers argue that if they had to pay for vaccine injuries and had to be liable, they would be tied up in litigation, nobody would want to make vaccines, and that particularly when it came to something very important like an emergency vaccine that needs to be developed, who would want to do it if they thought that this liability existed in the case of an accident or a problem that could really put them out of business. So there's two sides to why that system exists the way it does. But generally, this claim, if you get the coronavirus vaccine and you happen to have a rare, serious adverse event, the claim should be submitted to this countermeasures injury compensation program within one year of the date of getting the vaccine You can find out more about that again by looking at the end of the article on my website about all of this. I have the information on that. So I hope you learned something about the coronavirus vaccines that you didn't already know as you're considering about maybe which one to get if there's a choice or whether you are the right patient to get the coronavirus vaccine. Again, CDC says that is a very individual calculation in many cases where you should discuss with your doctor depending on your health your age, your risk factors, your particular biology, your possible allergies, all of those things have to be taken into consideration and you can make that decision. I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. Check out justthenews.com and don't forget to subscribe to the Cheryl Axon podcast my other podcast, Full Measure After Hours, and all the Just the News podcasts wherever you like to listen. I hope you'll leave me a good review and share it with your friends. I really hope you'll consider reading my new book, Slanted, How the News Media Taught Us to Love Censorship and Hate Journalism. It explains a lot. Do your own research. Make up your own mind. Think for yourself.